Welcome to Archetypes and Anarchy, a podcast created by me, Courtney Floyd, and my Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon in spring of 2018. Episode 24, Part 4, Write Yourself into the Story. In this episode, students will be taking what they've learned about fairy tales and fiction throughout the term, and in the spirit of Shauna McGuire's indexing, literally writing themselves into a fairy tale. To do so, they will be identifying Arne Thompson tale types and archetypes that already fit with some aspect of their lives, whether it's them being the youngest child, or having blonde hair, or owning a pair of glass shoes, uh, whatever the case may be. I suspect that this will be a very rewarding way to close out both our podcasts and the term, and I can't wait to hear what students have come up with. Thank you all so much for listening along with us as we went on this intro to fiction podcasting adventure, and from my class to you, we wish you all happily ever after. Once upon a time, in the city of Tualatine, Oregon, there lived a man by the name of Dwight Shelford. Dwight worked for a construction company called Scarn and Sons under his boss, Michael Scarn. Dwight worked below Scarn and was always treated as second fiddle. Not only that, but he struggled financially and his job barely supported his needs of everyday life. He worked very hard labor yet wasn't compensated accordingly. Meanwhile, Scarn earned a very nice income as CEO of the company. Michael Scarn always treated Dwight poorly. Poor Dwight worked so hard, yet his work goes unrecognized. He was ambitious, wanting to do something cool with his life, so making little money at this job didn't sit well with him. He at least wanted to take a higher position at this company. Dwight could never afford to go to college growing up, but he was trying to live a happy and successful life. Still, moving up in this work was his best bet of making his life better for now. One day, Shelford was so tired of being treated poorly that he goes up to Michael in hopes of fixing his life. First time he did it was in the morning. Michael! I demand that I am compensated with more generosity. Michael responds, Ha! You can only wish! Dwight sighed. He came back later that day, before going home and continuing his poverty-stricken life. Michael, I badly need to be treated more fairly. Michael declares, Dwight, you wish! And goes back to relaxing in his office. Dwight was fed up, but there wasn't much he could do. He was miserable, just wanting a way to support himself and be happy. Little money, no family, and a job he doesn't really enjoy. Dwight went to bed that night just wishing something could change. He shows up to work the next morning in total defeat. He looks like a mess, not wearing usual work clothes, not looking like he's prepared to go to work that day. He walks into Michael's office with tears on his face. Michael, I need this. Please just allow me to live a better life. Michael responds, Wipe those tears off your face, Dwight. Are you wearing non-work clothes? You can only wish your life improves, Dwight. You're fired. That was it for Dwight Shelford at this job. What would be next for him? He walks out of work hopeless, wondering the same thing. On his stroll back home, He thinks about what Michael was truly saying to him. You wish, Dwight. He kept saying, you wish. What do I wish? Dwight then proceeds to yell, I wish I could live a happy life with a job I like, family, and friends, and continues to walk. Just a few minutes later, a man on a bench sees an agonized Dwight and stops him. What's wrong, buddy? Come, sit. Dwight responds, who are you? The man says, my name is Sean. I want to help you. What's wrong? They talked for quite a bit. Dwight told him his issues and proceeded to tell him his wishes. Sean told him that he is a genie and he wants to help him turn his life around. Dwight is ecstatic. What a huge turn of events. 
The genie understood his wish and suddenly disappeared. The next morning, Dwight was suddenly the CEO of a construction company in Tualatin called Wolf Construction. As Dwight's time with the company continued, life was still going great. He loves his job, he now makes lots of money, and he even met a lady named Angela. As time passed, Dwight and Angela had become engaged. Everything he wished for on that sorrowful day has came true. It's so ironic because this all started with something that Michael said to him. One day, as he was walking out of work, he ran into Michael Scarn, a man that was once begging him to give him a better life. The evil Scarn wasn't happy to see Shelford with such joy, working for a rival business in the same city. Michael proceeds to talk. What happened, Dwight? How did you earn this gig and turn your life around? Dwight, a man with good morals, wouldn't ever lie. I took your advice, Michael. I wished for a better life and a genie appeared and fixed it. Wolf was striving, hurting Michael's business, and it was all because of a genie. Michael didn't know of any magical powers. It was just his choice of words that day of telling Dwight to wish. Their confrontation ended, and Michael pretended to be happy for Dwight, but he would get his revenge. A few days had passed, and Skarn had his plan. One day, Dwight was strolling out of work with Angela as if it were any other day. Suddenly, he was grasped in the neck by a random man. He was tackled by another, still getting strangled. Skarn, watching from a distance, was watching his master plan unfold. Skarn's ultimate goal was to kill Dwight, because without the intelligent and hardworking Dwight, there would be no woof, and Michael's construction company would again be on top. Angela panicked. There was nothing she could do, and the rest of his employees were gone by now. Dwight was a few minutes, perhaps seconds, from being choked to death. Dwight yells, I wish for me to be safe, but where was Sean? Where was the genie? Was Dwight's wishes already up? The genie was nowhere to be seen, and it was looking like Dwight was about to be choked to death. Lying there helpless, the sad emotions of his partner Angela were on display as it appeared Dwight was lost from humanity. But suddenly, a few minutes later, there was a wave in the sky as if something had changed. Dwight suddenly woke up. Angela was relieved as ever. Michael and his employees were under the impression that the master plan worked, and Dwight was dead. But something had changed. The genie had granted his wishes and saved Dwight when it appeared he was gone. Thank you, Sean, Dwight said. In the next couple days, the cops figured out about the strangling, and Michael and his employees would go away for a very long time. Scarn and Sons went out of business. Wolf would go on to be one of the most successful construction companies in the whole land, and Dwight and Angela would live happily ever after. This story was inspired by many things in my life. I used The Office as my theme, which is my favorite TV show. My characters were based on The Office, and Woof, Dwight's construction company, is uh, a company that's present in The Office. The city, Tualatin, Oregon, is just reflective of my ho actual hometown of Tualatin. I wanted to use me as a character who helps the protagonist because I consider myself someone who helps other nice people in real life. This story took lots of brainstorming and creativity because I needed to find ways to make it unique to me and still make it a fairy tale. What archetypes did I use? Well, my main character worked so hard yet lived in suffering, something you often see in fairy tales. Meanwhile, my antagonist was very mean to the protagonist and served as an evil character, but ended up losing in the end. He used You Wish three times, which sent a message to Dwight, and in fairy tales you often see characters repeat things and things often come in threes. Of course I needed some kind of special powers and magic in there and that's where I came in as a genie to help save the day. In my climax I looked as if I wasn't going to be there and there was a big conflict going on but then it ended up being resolved. Of course I broke some archetypes too and made it very modern. My story included competing businesses, cops, and other elements related to modern times that you'd often don't see in fairy tales. My main theme of this story is that the, the, the good guys should always win something that I believe to be true in real life. 
the hardest workers, the most humble, kind people are the ones that deserve to have success. Life throws curveballs at you, but with the right attitude, everything will work out for the ones that work the hardest and are most dedicated, kind, and positive. All in all, I found this to be a really fun assignment because it allowed me to use creativity and at the same time, show what I learned in class. I constantly told my friends about this assignment to get some feedback on what they think because I really wanted it to be unique and fun, yet be a really good story as well. Hi, my name is Wit, and this is me writing myself into a fairy tale. The story is called The Most Beautiful Girl in All the Land. As a little girl, my mother always told me stories about beautiful girls who could have anything they could ever dream of simply because of their beauty. I would stare in her mirror and focus on my beak-like nose, dull mouse-like hair, and soupy brown eyes. As I cried myself to bed each night, I wished on every shooting star to be beautiful like the girls in my mother's stories. On my 16th birthday, my mother gifted me a wishing tree. My mother said, My child, I hear your cries every night, and I too want nothing more for you than to be beautiful. For your birthday, I'm going to give you a seed to plant, and as the seed grows, so shall you, into the most beautiful woman in the land. What my mother did not tell me was that the seed was full of dark magic, and as everyone knows, dark magic takes as much as it gives, and on my birthday, my mother grew ill and passed away. I planted the seed in the middle of the forest, so no one but myself would ever find it. I would come visit it every day, and the tree, as it grew, would whisper with the wind sweet words in my ear. You are the most beautiful in the land. As the tree grew taller, I grew more beautiful. First, my nose became cute as a button, next, my hair a beautiful strawberry blonde, and finally, my eyes changed into a striking green. Decades later, I would still visit this tree, and each time it would whisper with the wind, you are the most beautiful in all the land. My skin would glow with these compliments, and my hair would become even shinier. But one day, when I approached the tree, I noticed the leaves were becoming dull and droopy. I asked the tree, what has become of you? The tree answers, you are the most beautiful in the land, but not for long. For a baby as white as snow and as red as blood is to be born, and she shall grow to be the most beautiful in the land. I wept and wept beneath the tree, for I knew if the magic were to leave me, I would lose everything. As I wept and the tree grew duller, my hair did as well. The mousy brown seemed to peek through my beautiful strawberry blonde. What can I do? What can I do? I cried louder and louder. The tree replied, you have until the girl's 16th birthday to find her and destroy her. And once again, you shall be the most beautiful in all the land. I was green with envy of the small child who was not even born yet and set out to find her and destroy her. In town, I heard the most beautiful baby being born, as white as snow and as red as blood. Her name, Snow White, everyone was saying, but her mother had died in delivery and now the father was alone. I took this opportunity and soon married the man, becoming the child's stepmother. But like the people in the town, I too was falling in love with this little girl that was as white as snow and as red as blood. After my wedding, I went to the tree and wept and wept. I cannot kill Snow White. While she may become the most beautiful in the land, she is also the kindest. The tree shook its leaves. If the child lives, then your life will end. This beauty was taken from someone and given to you, and soon your beauty will be taken away and given to her.
I wept and wept and realized this tree caused my mother's death, and soon it would either cause Snow White's or my own. One of the tree's branches wrapped itself around my shaking shoulders and grew a bright red apple. Give this to Snow White by her 16th birthday, and you will continue to be the be most beautiful in all the land. I took the apple. As the years flew by, and I would continue visiting the tree, and stare at the apple which I kept buried in the box beneath it, I never had the strength to give it to Snow White. On the girl's 16th birthday, I went to the tree, dug up the box with the poison apple inside, wrapped it in the most beautiful paper with the most beautiful bow, and presented it to Snow White. When Snow White opened the gift, she stared at awe, for it was the brightest, juiciest red apple she'd ever seen. And just as she was about to take a bite, I knew I had made a mistake and snatched it from her hand and bit into the bright red apple. I collapsed and the apple fell from my hand. And just as I was taking my last breath, I heard Snow White pick up the apple and notice the seeds in the center. And she said out loud, I will plant these apple seeds in honor of my stepmother. And so the cycle continued. In my story, I really, you know, I didn't really base it off of my life. Um, but I really just kind of wanted to explore the idea of magic in fairy tales and what role they actually play, you know, because what's Cinderella without her fairy godmother, what's, you know, the, the evil queen in Snow White without her mirror. So I tried to give magic its own character, and that's what I did with the tree. The tree was definitely the the molding of the story. The tree's definitely the one that decided what happened to each individual. You know, it killed the mom. It turned my character beautiful. And then in return, it killed my character and made Snow White beautiful. And so I also like with the stories, I wanted to explore the queen's perspective, you know, the bad guy's perspective in Snow White. It's like, what if, what if magic is like the one that corrupted her? Like I said in the story, dark magic comes the price. And so that was the price for her maybe in the original Snow White was that she was corrupted. And, and so that's kind of how I wanted to break down that archetype of the evil queen. Like, why was she evil? And, and so I wanted to explore that a little bit. Um, and then I also chose not to give Snow White much of a voice. She was just kind of there. I enjoyed using, you know, the white as snow and as red as blood, like from the original. I thought that was really fun. But she, you know, she's definitely more of a flat character, and I think that's what she kind of needed. Like, I, I, she wasn't supposed to be the main, the main girl in the story for me. So I was glad that I was able to, like, still make her flat, but still make her very relevant. Because, you know, it ends with her picking up the seeds. And, and I also, you know, it's like, so the cycle continued. And, and just kind of, like, the repetitive, again, like, of, of the magic. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what I did with my story kind of changed it up a little bit, but I, I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you. Testing, one, two, three. Once upon a time, there was a student named Bo Scott. The end of the term was fast approaching, and he had just finished up recording the last assignment, which happened to be a recording of a modern fairy tale he had to insert himself into. That was all. It was all saved on the Pixie Net, 
a network of pixies that collected, stored, and moved information and files. It just so happened that the pixies in Bo's computer were making trouble. But what, what, what do you mean, no? Bo cried out. Oh, we can't retrieve your file for you, replied a pixie. Why? Because the look on your face was hilarious when we said it. And because we are a trustworthy, reliable, and honest service, we destroyed recording, free of charge. You what? You just destroyed my final on a whim? Yep. I'm sorry, we can't really do anything more, anything more for you. And so Bo left, dejected at the prospect of not turning in a final. The pixie, however, felt bad for him, and decided to help him out. She left to help Bo re-record his project. First, she had to find someone to play the role of the king. She found someone in the theater arts department, which she thought fit the bill of playing a king. Hey, listen, you're starting to become an actor, right? Said the pixie. Uh, yes, said the actor. What about it? Well, I was wondering if you could play a role in a production. Hmm, it depends. What is the role? You, of course, would play a king. The most prestigious role. Well, if I'm playing the king, then I guess I'm interested. Who would I talk to about it? The pixie directed the actor to Bo, and he left to find him. A while later, he came upon Bo and asked, Excuse me, are you Bo? said the actor. Yes, Bo said. Great, you need an actor to play the part of a king, and I'll fill that role. Uh, that's nice, but I don't know if I'll still be doing it. I need another person to play as the extras, and I don't think I can do this anymore. Oh, come on, I'm sure we'll find another person. I'm confident in this production. Just hand me a script and we can look for another person. And so Bo gave the actor a script and they went to look for another person. The pixie was looking for someone to play the other part as well. She found someone who could easily be the extras. Hey, you're going to play the part of the extras when someone asks you to, the pixie said. Hmm. And, uh, why is that? Because if you refuse the first part you're offered, I'll make it so you can't access PixieNet for a whole year. Uh, please don't do that. I'll, I'll, I'll play the first part that I'm asked to play. Yeah, yeah? okay. If you refuse the second part, I'll change all of your passwords. But, but, but please, please don't, don't do that. I'll play the second part of this that I'm asked to play, okay? If you refuse the third part, say goodbye to your bank accounts. Oh, uh, please, please don't do that. I'll play the third part that I'm asked to play. Later, Bo and the actor approached the extra. Excuse me, Bo asked, but could you possibly play extras in the script? The first part is a butcher. Of course I'll play the role, responded the extra. And how about the second part as a baker? Oh, uh, yeah, of course I'll play that role. And the last part as a candlestick maker? Why, uh, yeah, of course I'll play the role. Great! Now all we need is a recording room. And so the three left to get a recording room. But little did they know that the room was occupied. The occupant happened to be a gymnast recording a biographical story. The pixie wasn't having any of that and decided to end the, gymna the gymnast's recording early. 
Hey, hey, said a pixie. You're a gymnast, correct? Uh, that is correct, said the gymnast. Well, I hear you're all acrobatic and stuff, correct? Able to do all sorts of fantastic acrobatic things. Uh, yeah. Why, why, why is that? Well, I bet you can't do a backflip. A backflip? Why, yes, of course I can do a backflip. Hmm. I don't believe it. Show me, then, if you can do a backflip. Hmm. Of course I can. And so the gymnast did a backflip. But during the flip, the pixie moved a chair so that the gymnast's head would collide with it. The gymnast was severely injured and had to be rushed to the hospital. But as he's not the main character, he that doesn't really concern us much. With the gymnast in the hospital, that left the room open. And when Bo and company approached the room, it, it was empty, and so they were able to record the fairy tale. The fairy tale was recorded, and Bo got an A on it. The end. Hello, my name is Bo Scott. So when I was writing this fairy tale, the main plot that I really wanted to do was a really meta one, like a meta, a plot that was about the actual writing and making of a fairy tale self-insert like this. Like, that's just something that I just really, really love. And the fairy tale that I chose to use was Puss in Boots, as I felt like Puss in Boots could really easily be made into one of these plots where, say, you're unable to record because of something, then you need to bring in other people to help you. That also reminded me that I made myself the fool hero, which which I found kind of pretty funny. As if you're familiar, like it's that essentially makes it the opposite of those self inserts where you're where the writer themselves is just so amazing and all the other stuff. Although I guess everything does just kind of fall into my lap. It's through no fault of my own. And I must admit, the story was inspired a lot by Windows updates. Because, of course, Windows always updates. And when it updates, you just have to wait for it. It doesn't matter if you got a project that you have to turn in. It has to update first. In regards to the archetypes, I actually played them pretty straight. Like, the characters' personalities are quite a fit, bit different than the ones in Puss in Boots, and the story doesn't go exactly the same way, but it tends to be quite similar. Although I feel like the most different one is probably the king. He doesn't actually give me anything in particular that's extremely important. He's just another character, quite similar to the extra actually. In fact, if I didn't if I wasn't going for the parallels, I could have just had the same guy as both playing the king and the extra, but I kept it in mainly as parallelism with the original Puss in Boots. So even though I'm not breaking too many archetypes, that that archetype with the king as the benefactor that makes everything better wasn't really done in this one, as he didn't really do anything important besides exist. Well, that's the end of this wrap-up. I've been Bo Scott.
and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Bailey, and this is my fairy tale titled Candy Cane Lane. For years, children have been playing the board game called Candyland. However, little did children know that the board game came alive when nobody was playing it. The characters such as Princess Frostine, Princess, pa Princess Lolly, Lord Licorice, Plumpy, Mr. Mint, Gloppy, King Candy, and Grandma Nut all had a life of their own. Princess Frostine and Lolly were twin sisters that did everything together and loved their Grandma Nut very much. Their father, King Candy, was always busy with ruling over all the land as well as having to deal with the sometimes mischievous Lord Licorice. While Plumpy, Mr. Mint, and Gloppy were the business owners of the very popular Gingerbread House shopping mall. Everybody was very content with their lifestyle. However, that started to change. After years of going along with the rules and instructions provided within the box, a couple of Candyland citizens became curious of the outside world. Finally, after days of contemplating what to do, the two princesses decided that they had to venture outside of the board game at least once before their 18th birthday. Once the other citizens heard of their plan, they were initially anxious, but then surprisingly okay with it. Even Lord Licorice had offered a few pieces of advice and said he wanted to help. However, he was actually planning on putting a curse on the princess's adventure. The curse made it so the girls needed to find a magical book that had the spell they needed in order to come back into Candyland when they wished. Also, he thought it would be funny if they stayed the same size as their board game pieces. On a Tuesday afternoon, Megan Reynolds, a seven-year-old girl, accidentally left her Candyland board game out on the kitchen table. Princess Frostine and Princess Lolly decided that it was the perfect time to escape. They jumped out and roamed the Reynolds household. In the beginning, it was even better than they could have ever imagined. The empty house allowed them to see so many new things. They ran all around, looked out the window, and saw the busy city and watched TV. They even ate brand new foods, such as fruits and vegetables. However, after a few hours of freedom, the family came back home. Princess Frostine and Lolly were very nervous and tried to hide away and not be spotted so they weren't thrown back into the box. But the family's dog found them fairly quickly. They were running as fast as they could, but since they were so tiny, it didn't really help. The dog sniffed and licked them, but eventually lost interest and left them alone. Just when they thought they experienced the worst of it, the Reynolds, the Reynolds three-year-old son, Ryan, spotted the girls and wanted to play Hot Wheels with them. The princesses were roughly handled and put into separate toy cars and raced each other. The cars went so fast and Ryan forgot to go looking for them after a while. After the sisters got out of the cars, they decided it was time to go home and they needed to start looking for the magical book. After thinking long and hard, they thought the only logical place was for it to be hidden among the cookbooks in the kitchen cabinet. They rushed over, but on their way, they had to dodge such large footsteps, which belonged to Richard, the father. After successfully avoiding being stepped on, they made it into the kitchen. Busy making dinner, the mother, Carrie, was distracted and didn't even notice the girls sneaking into the cabinet area. 
After a few tries, they correctly said the spell, just as Richard was cleaning off the table and about to put away Candyland. Back at home, the town was extremely and suspiciously quiet. No one was walking around Main Street or eating at Grandma Nut's famous dessert shop or floating in the river of milk. Princess Lolly and Frostine began to think that they said the spell wrong and that their friends and family had disappeared forever. They made their way back towards the castle, located on Candy Cane Lane, in order to make up a plan. As they walked into the castle gates, they they heard some strange noises and started to get scared. When they walked in, the twin girls saw all of Candyland's citizens in the living room ready to celebrate their surprise birthday party. Everybody was there, including Lord Licorice. It turns out that King Candy had asked for his help to pull off the surprise party and distract the girls. After greeting everybody, all of the guests sat down around the table as the girls shared their stories about the adventures they had just endured. As much fun as they had, and with all the memories that they made, they were pleased to realize that Candyland was going to be their home forever. The end. Now I'm going to reflect on all of the decisions that I made in order to create this fairy tale. As the assignment asked for a modern take on fairy tales, I decided to creatively write about a board game. Candyland is a pretty popular game, and most people know about it or have played it at least once. I thought it would be interesting to use an ordinary item and make it into a fairy tale. I gave the characters background stories and made Candyland turn into an alive place. Also, I wrote my fairy tale with inspiration from the Malu literature type of story. Both Princess Frostine and Princess Lolly have a clear goal to escape the Reynolds household since they have entered it and they want to get home. Additionally, I worked to break the archetype of a traditional evil character. I made the audience perceive the character Lord Licorice as evil. However, I revealed his genuine intentions by the end of the story. By doing this, I broke the evil character's archetype because I revealed the truth behind all of the character's actions. Thank you. Hi, my name is Kylie, and this is my fairy tale. Life is hard, but it is worth it. Long ago, there was a girl named Bree. She was the sweetest, most sheltered little girl, whom was raised by her father. When Bree turned 10, her mother passed away in a dreadful car crash. At the, t- at the time, her dad worked full-time and didn't have much time to be with the family, so Bree and her mother did everything together. Once a week, they would go to the park, get ice cream, and go on some sort of adventure. Bree would have never guessed that that one drive to the supermarket would be the last. Before she could even blink her eyes, her park visits, her favorite ice cream dates, and mysterious car rides would be forever changed. Years later, Bree's dad got laid off and she was told they had to move away. Away from all the friends that she grew up with, all the friends that have been there for her through it all. Within the next week, Bree and her dad packed their things and they were on their way to Oregon. She had never even heard of the state of Oregon before. She was so scared to move away from Florida. That was her home and where she had made all her memories with her mom. But Bree didn't have a choice. Her dad had to, be, had to be able to support their small family. It didn't take long after they moved to Oregon for Bree's dad to meet a new woman. This woman was tall, blonde, and 30 years younger than Bree's dad. 
Bree didn't like the idea of a new woman in her life, but her dad was notably happier before than before. When the girlfriend became more present in Bree's life, she realized how much she actually liked her, other than the fact that she wasn't much older than her. She wasn't sure if it was right to like her. She felt as if she was betraying her mother, that she, that she was essentially replacing her own mom in a sense. This kept Bree from really opening up to her dad's new girlfriend, as well as shutting down towards her dad. Bree gained the sense of fear for many different things as she grew older. Fear of never being good enough. Making friends in Oregon was not an easy task for Bree. She was so nervous to start high school. She was so nervous to start high school. The morning of her very first day, she said hi to the people she had met once or twice in middle school, but she tried to stay out of everybody's way. She knew she was going to be there for the next four years at this school. She wanted to make a good impression on everyone. But it was the first day when she met a girl named Maddie. Maddie sat next to her in biology first period. Maddie was the prettiest redhead she had ever seen. Soon enough, they became best friends. Most of the other girls at school were mean and not interested in getting to know Bree. Since high school started, Bree's dad started spending much more time with his new girlfriend. She rarely saw him between work and school. He spent most nights at her, his girlfriend's house, which led Bree to spend most nights at Maddie's house. They were inseparable up until the beginning of junior year. Maddie met a guy on the football team. That changed it all. They went from hanging out all day every day to only a few times a week. Maddie had to figure out how to make time for both Bree and her new boyfriend. However, Maddie couldn't figure it out. She obviously favored time with her new boyfriend because she was so in love. Bree would call Maddie a few times a week, but Maddie didn't answer much anymore. It seemed as if their friendship was drifting apart, leaving Bree pretty lonely most days. A couple days later, Bree left school early crying. She went home to an empty house with no one to talk to. In this moment, she wished for nothing more than to talk to her mother. The two people she had in her life were being occupied by other people. People now made Brie, people that now made Brie feel insignificant. Her dad didn't make enough time for her and neither did Maddie. Every day following, she would go straight to school and as soon as the last bell rang, she would go right back to her room where she wouldn't leave the rest of the night. This went on for quite some time. She would have dreams some nights that things were back to normal, back to when her mom was alive and when she was happy. Maddie and her boyfriend started arguing more, and the relationship was getting pretty bumpy. However, Brie was always there for Maddie when they started fighting. Regardless of how Brie was getting treated, she knew that she had to be there for her friend. Things started getting worse and worse for Maddie and her boyfriend, especially when it came to choosing colleges and learning how to cope with the fact that they would have to pursue a long-distance relationship if they wanted it to work. Brie was there for Maddie no matter the fight. Bree didn't want to feel alone anymore, and she knew there would be a light at the end of this friendship tunnel if she pursued the support. A month later, Maddie and her boyfriend hit rock bottom, and there was no way they could ever save, save their relationship. Maddie gave everything she had to him, and he changed his mind. Maddie was a mess for the following weeks. Fortunately, Bree knew what it was like to feel broken and empty. <clears throat> Maddie spent the next few weeks grieving in her bed about the loss of her boyfriend, although Brie didn't leave her side that whole week. <coughs> Sorry. Brie kept reassuring Maddie that if it was meant to be, then it'll be, and everything happened for a reason. Brie could relate to that. It took a while, but Maddie came to realize how important friendship is, 
and how it should stump any high school relationship. Maddie brought up the fact that she left Brie alone in the darkest of times and wasn't a good friend those last couple of months. They made a pact that the next night that they would never do that to each other again. Friendship is such an important part of a life. Boys come and go, but friends will last forever. Maddie was so thankful Brie didn't leave her side the entire way. Friendships can challenge us, confuse us, and sometimes break us down, but it's so important to our lives. Friendship teaches you patience, responsibility, and personality. It gives you a sense of purpose in life. Friendship can keep you mentally and physically strong, helps improve your quality of life, and helps us interact with people. Brie and Maddie realized this and put life in perspective. They knew it was inevitable that they weren't going to fight sometimes, but they promised to never leave each other's side again. That end. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about my reflection. Basically, this assignment asked me to create a fairy tale, and that wasn't an easy task for me. I've always, like, considered myself pretty creative, but when trying to come up with something to write about, I was not creative. I, I literally came to, like, a rock bottom where I was like, I do not know what I'm going to write about. Like, I thought about Cinderella, I thought about Snow White, I thought about all these different fairy tales, and I was like, oh, I can do this. And I was like, wait, that's Cinderella, or wait, that was Little Mermaid, I can't do that. So eventually, I started brainstorming, and I was like, okay, I'm going to write something that I can, like, kind of relate to, or, like, it will provide some emotions to people. So once I started writing, it just, it kind of just came to me, and it felt a lot easier once I got going. I just started typing, and things came together. But I think this story about Brie can somehow relate to girls growing up with, like, with boys coming into their lives and mean girls. Like, I think middle school is the hardest time of my entire life. And I just tried to, like, relate that to some people. But I think the significance of my story, my fairy tale, is to show how important friendship is and how it, how conflict comes up between friends. But at the end of the day, it's so important. And it'll, and these friends will be with you the rest of your life. But boys, they'll come and go. And they're not that important to our lives. But, I mean, I think stereotypically or, like, the archetype that I was trying to break was the, like, how the prince, like, how the prince is, like, supposed to save the, the women or the girls. But in my, my fairy tale, I, I wanted to break that. I don't think the guy was important. I think the guy just created havoc in these girls' lives. I, that, so, essentially, I wanted, to, I wanted to, like, show that Brie was fearful of, of not being good enough. And she had these fears going into her life. And I just wanted to break that. Like, you don't, like, the grieving process, that that goes on. Like, you, life goes on. Like, my title, Life is Hard But Is Worth It, I think the hard part came from, like, her mom passing and then not having very many friends and not being able to do things on her own or her dad and her dad's new girlfriend. But she overcame it and stuck around for Maddie when she needed someone the most. But, um... Like I said, people go through the hard times in life, but at the end of the day, like, life is what you make of it, and I think everyone can understand to that and relate to that, but I just wanted the audience to be able to look into this girl's life and, like, realize people go through stuff, and, like, just because they're happy on the outside does not mean they're happy on the inside, so, yeah, basically, it <sighs> Bree's life is hard, but she overcame it, and I think that's what I wanted people to really relate to and understand. Thank you so much.
Archetypes and Anarchy is produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and researched and written by my spring 2018 Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon. Our theme music is Music Box by The Underscore Orchestra, and our closing music is Wolf, It's Really Rather Rad by High Arches, both of which are available under a Creative Commons license at the Free Music Archive. The sound of the wolf that lives in the woods That comes to my back door from time to time Shake the hand of the sun that burns above Reaches down over everyone Got your jackal and heart, your monster inside Pouring water over your fire I incurl us a soul that I need to go Back into the woods, I'm told Not a single living thing needs to be left out You can find in the garden what's missing in yourself There's a spider web that connects heads Connected by the number nine can you think in visions and breathe in rhythms? Dream an ocean over your lips. It brings a deeper meaning, a powerful feeling. Brings us the myths we're told. And it's only clean water that supports the things that we're trying to grow. Not a single living cell needs to be left out. Finding the garden what's missing in yourself Have you seen the way the speaker makes a pattern in the sand When the frequency is just right, oh man, it's really rather rare